0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. All right. So um, let's get into um, tonight's Dharma talk. So what uh, my plan is for um, the talk is... um, Um, I'm going to run through, but uh, a few times in the talk, I'm going to do some um, uh, experiential practices with you, um, if I'd invite you to join me for, and then at the end of the talk, I'll leave time for questions or um, comments as well. So, the topic for tonight's talk is letting go cessation and the third noble truth. So I'm diving right in, into this. It's quite a, a big topic. Um, but what, I, the, what inspired me to um, talk about this tonight was actually um, a couple of months ago, I think it was, I was sitting a three-day retreat up at Spirit Rock with Jack Cornfield and Trudy Goodman. And um, they had actually been to Dharm, Dharamsala in India, I think it was earlier in the year, to spend time with the Dalai Lama and other, um, le- you know, spiritual leaders and teachers uh, in the, the Buddhist tradition, and it was on um, mindfulness and education, I believe. The, it was a sort of um, a conference, if you like. So they got to Jack and Trudy had spent quite a bit of time with the Dalai Lama up there, and um, Jack reported that the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama, said to him. Um, that in the West, in Western Buddhism, we're focusing too much on suffering and we Dharma teachers need to teach cessation. <laughs> so that really struck a chord with me and it really inspired me. And look, I can't read the mind of the Dalai Lama, and nor of Jack Kornfield for that matter. Um, but what I took from this is that in Western um, Buddhist teaching, we focus too much on the dukkha, you know, on the suffering. Um, so the first noble truth. Uh, and I, I have I've seen it, you know, it, did, it rang a bell for me. It really um, resonated that there's a tendency, um, and I've experienced it in myself, a tendency to um, focus on fixing our problems, you know, our emotional um, pain or our psychological our issues, um, the baggage that we all carry um, and, and many meditators can get into a kind of a somewhat self-obsessed path or just a, a very obsessed path about wanting to root out the, these problems or our issues and fix them up and make them go away basically. Um, and look, that's how many of us have been motivated to come to meditation um, to start a meditation practice because we're experiencing pain and unhappiness um, and we want to escape from it. So if um, you think back to what prompted you to start meditating whenever that was in your life, um, if, if you think back, was there, were you experiencing some kind of stress or pain or physical pain or emotional suffering? You know, was that what brought you along? Does that resonate for anyone? Yes, yeah, quite a lot of people are nodding yes. So, and myself as well, that's generally what um, brings us to the practice and, and prompts us to keep keep trying and keep going. So Buddhism does offer this potential for freedom from this, that suffering. And of course when we meditate we get fleeting experiences or maybe not fleeting, maybe even um, longer experiences of Freedom from it, from pain. So we keep following the path. So the inner inner experience is where we start on our meditation journey and our spiritual journey, for sure. Um, and it does give us a lot of material to work with, of course. All those um, thoughts and emotions that you know we're cultivating awareness of, and our relationship to them, and realizing our you know clinging and or aversion to them. This is really important. Um, but what inspired me to delve into this particular topic tonight um, was recalling—I think it was really recalling my own experience as a beginning meditator. So I remember um, doing retreat after retreat, where I was um, just so sort of agonising over my inner turmoil, you know, my emotional um, pain and demons. So I was obsessed with, at times, obsessed with those painful feelings or strong, you know, those were the strong feelings that came to my attention. They're the most um, in in your face, if you like. And I remember um, one particular retreat, I was on a seven-day silent meditation retreat uh, in Australia, and um, I felt so terribly, you know, emotionally in pain that I went to my teacher who knew me well and I'd done many retreats with her and I told her I still had these feelings of fear and grief and could she basically make them go away? <laughs> you know, what can you what can you offer me? What can you tell me to do to make them go away? And she just said to me, I can't help you. <laughs> and um, when I, you know, reflect and, and I reflected a lot on it, really that's because I was barking up the wrong tree. You know, I was Obsessed about those issues and that those particular um, emotional pains, um, and <laughs> the more I tried to root them out and fix them, and you know, make them package them up and put them away on the shelf, sort of thing, um, the more entrenched they seem to get. So, does that sound familiar to anyone? In, in, have you perhaps you've experienced that on a retreat as well? And it can be a physical pain as well. Um, or an emotional pain or, or a particular um, issue, the challenge that you're going through. So what i wanted uh, like to investigate in tonight's talk is how can we bring the idea of awakening or enlightenment, in fact the experience of it, closer to home? So this um, looking at this cessation from the suffering. And in this way, how can we make this uh, this awakening a greater focus of our practice, rather than the pain and the issues and the psychological um, baggage, if you like? Because I feel this is more fruitful for our practice, um, because it'll be a counterbalance to the our tendency um, to we have that many of us have. Not everybody, but many people many meditators have of dwelling in our issues and, and our pain, and that includes physical pain as well. Okay. So I'll briefly recap the four noble truths. I'm sure um, most of you are very familiar with it, but just for the, the context of talking about the third noble truth... So the first noble truth, um, so this was uh, the Buddha's first real major teaching where he, after he um, became enlightened and and came out of the forest and he uh, was was walking through the forest in this enlightened state and he came upon um, five monks who he had meditated with previously uh, before he had his awakening experience um, f- who were the other ascetics like him, and he? They eventually they realised that he was changed. That something had happened. He um, was different to before. And you know they saw this sort of um, sensed his awakened nature and asked him to teach them. And so he taught them. He, this was his first teaching: the four noble truths. So the first noble truth is that there is suffering, or dissatisfaction or stress. Um, you know, there are different words for, for it, but dukkha is the, the Pali. And um, so that is basically um, a fact of life through sickness, ageing and death that there is inevitably um, some forms of suffering in, in any life. So the second noble truth is that this suffering is caused by our craving or our clinging um, or aversion, the, the other side of the same coin, um, to, th- to anything in our life, that's where the suffering is coming from. And the third noble truth which I'm going to focus on tonight is, and I'm actually going to read now the actual um, words in the translation of um, the Sutta. So the Buddha said, And this, monks, is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, or suffering the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. So that's the third noble truth. And the fourth noble truth is um, the Noble Eightfold Path. So that was where the Buddha set out. Here's the, the path, the roadmap, if you like, that follow this plan and that will lead you to liberation from suffering. Okay, so that's the, the sort of framework. Um, so this third noble truth is cessation, um, or, you know, there are many words, other words, um, you know, I mentioned there in that translation, the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, letting go. Um, and also that um, state, when that is reached, is known as nirvana or nibbana. Um, enlightenment, awakening. So there are many, many words to point to this kind of state or experience. So this um, cessation is the goal of the Buddhist path. Okay, So to, to state that there is a goal and that that's where the path's leading. So cessation um, is defined or... Um, explained in different ways and of course it's all just words pointing to some experience that can't actually be um, named or you know defined with words so we can only ever point towards this but um, and and of course very few people can talk about it from first-hand experience either (laughs) Um, but some explanations of, of cessation or nirvana enlightenment um I will point you to this fantastic book, uh, "Emptiness," by Guy Armstrong, who's uh, um, based up in Marin, um, teaches at Spirit Rock also. So um, I'll briefly mention he's he's got a um, a great uh, explanation of around cessation in there, and he writes of um, cessation being where it's cessation of sense consciousness. So there this experience of of enlightenment is said to be where all the senses drop away. And that experience is preceded by a relaxed yet alert attention characterized by equanimity and dispassion. And of course, that's what all the meditation practice that we do is is about, that relaxed yet alert attention um, with equanimity and dispassion. So um, this, this, and the state, this cessation of sense consciousness can um, uh, come as a sudden enlightenment moment that then passes, so it's just in, in a brief experience. Or if you're the Buddha, the experience doesn't stop and it's a kind of permanent state. Um, but, you know, for most... Um, people who reach that state of enlightenment, even the brief sudden awakening experience, it is only temporary. And, um, and Guy Armstrong talks about the sudden awakening gradual cultivation, which is the path of the, most of these experienced meditators, that it's about having those awakening experiences and then continuing on needing to cultivate, cultivate, to you know, continue on the path. So I just want to read out a quote from that uh, this book, Emptiness, talking about um, actually one of the monks that um, the Buddha gave that first teaching to, the, the the Four Noble Truths, who was the Venerable Kondanna. And he had this sudden awakening experience. Um, and... It was actually um, a Korean Zen master, Chinul, who was asked about this sudden awakening experience. Does that mean it's the end of the journey? You know, they're enlightened and and that's it. They can just relax now. Um, And what he said was um, this sudden awakening has to be followed by more work. And I'll just read the quote. Although he has awakened to the fact that his original nature is no different from that of the Buddha's, the beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly, and so he must continue to cultivate while relying on this awakening. Though through this gradual permeation, his endeavours reach completion; hence, it is called gradual cultivation. So, the, the reason I wanted to um, read that I really like this quote is that the beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly. I was from the. Um, point that out that we all have, you know, these habit energies which is just the mind going to, you know, clinging to things or, or pushing things away that we don't like. And it's very difficult um, to to just drop that. So that's what that is, is pointing to. Even though, you, you know, that he's had this amazing awakening experience, it still comes back, you know, that those habit energies. But the other key thing about this quote is that... Um, through this gradual permeation, his endeavours reach completion. So he's, uh, while relying on this awakening. So it's like a building block. So every awakening experience is building on the next, um, leading towards, um, you know, eventual, eventually reaching full enlightenment. And so that's the same for for all of us. In that meditation is cumulative. So every sitting practice you do, every mindful walking you do, it builds on the last. And so your experience over time is you know is never wasted. So even if you have a bad meditation, like you sit down and your mind's racing or you restless or you fall asleep or something, it doesn't matter because it's cumulative, it all that experience adds up and you you're gaining um you're growing in your uh, um, experience and your ability to you know concentrate or your awareness and so forth. So it's the same for all of us as it is to, you know, one of the Buddha's five um, monk disciples. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, our awakening experiences in meditation are the building blocks for our movement towards this goal of nirvana. And now I just want to to um, uh, quote from another um, enlightened thinker, uh, or writer, um, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, who has a really lovely um, article. It's actually just on, on the internet if you want to find it. It's called Nirvana for Everyone, which is I really like. Um, and so he's taking a step back from that sort of all-sense con- all consciousness ceasing and you know um, that sort of exalted idea of, of enlightenment and let's look at how we everyday folks might touch into nirvana. That's what um, the article's about and really that's what my talk's about tonight. So Buddhadasa Bhikkhu argues in this Nirvana for Everyone that if the causes of our clinging and suffering are not present, even for a moment, then the phenomenon has the real sense of nirvana. Hence, temporary nirvana does exist. Even for a second, in fact, he argues that one survives because there are periods where the fi- fires of defilement do not burn. So the fires of defilement is our you know, um, craving or clinging or our aversion to something, our um, dislike and, of things or our desires. So because there are periods where none of that is, is present, um, this keeps us all alive and well and is a nourishing condition normal to life. So if our mind was constantly stressed in this, I want more of that or I don't want that, you know, this constant dissatisfaction, if our mind was and our body was 100% in that state, we would, according to him, we would die or we'd go crazy at the very least. So he's saying that um, we have gaps, we all have gaps in the kind of craving and clinging where we have the space to experience brief moments of nirvana. That's what he's saying. And if we didn't, we go crazy. So it is, in fact, he says, it's our instinct to go in search of spans of time when the mind is free from defilement or desire. Whenever it happens, a little nirvana always comes in. And the phenomenon will continue until one learns how to convert it into permanent or complete nirvana. Okay, so never forget, a little nirvana always comes in. (laughs) I really love that. Okay. So how might we go about um, connecting with a little nirvana? That's what I want to get into now. So I'm going to run through um, three or four different approaches that, that we can all use in our everyday practice. So the first one is looking at um, letting go. So accepting and letting go our pain or our suffering. So I'm sure you're all familiar, that's a sort of key um Aspect or or skill that we cultivate in in the Dharma or in Buddhist practice Um, But there is the risk as I mentioned right at the start that we um, Can get a bit fixated or obsessed about our pain or our suffering? um, When we're when we're working on this particular area So what I'm suggesting is we need to focus less on our experience of our pain and suffering less emphasis on rooting out those problems and fixing them or, or even um, like if any of you have experienced physical pain and worked with that in your practice, um, it can become a project to be all good with the pain. I'm not gonna be controlled by the pain, I'm gonna let it go, I'm gonna be cool with the pain, I'm good with the pain. That can be a real project in itself if, if that makes sense, and, and um, we can get caught up in being good with our pain. So I'm just kind of pointing to um, not wanting to, make, to, to cling, I guess, to the whole idea of fixing our problems or our pain. So I, the alternative or the um, more fruitful approach, I would suggest, is... Um, more emphasis on accepting that yes, there'll be pain or unhappiness at times in our life, and that's okay. Um, but there will also there will also be happiness, joy, excitement, or just simple being like not exciting, just everyday being, hanging out, sort of neutral experiences as well, and being good with that. That we can be. Um, excited and happy, we can be sad or in pain, and we can just be kind of here. And whatever it is, is okay. So um, here's a nice quote um, about this from Ajahn Suchito. A lot of the Buddhist approach is in not doing, relaxing, softening, and relinquishing harmful and unskillful inclinations. Don't get fascinated by content. Just establish the frame of reference. Everything is yes in terms of its existence, but no in terms of getting activated by it. Just acknowledging and letting go, recognising there's an alternative, and the energy of the activation shifts by itself and discharges. I really like this quote. Everything is yes in terms of its existence, but no in terms of getting activated by it. Like that really resonates for me. Okay, so yeah, accepting or letting go is is not about solving the problem, or even getting fascinated by the content, as in the quote. Um, but that is often how we do approach our problems. Um, I wanted to um, mention actually that. Um, Has anyone here either done a MBSR mindfulness-based stress reduction course or perhaps even um, teaches it? Yes, quite a few of you. Yes, so I'm an MBSR teacher uh, trained to teach it. And um, so this is, you know, secular mindfulness. As you're probably familiar, John Kabat-Zinn had uh, developed that program and brought it into the health and psychology world. And has done an amazing job of bringing mindfulness to you know many many more people across the world. Um, and that program, I believe, is very powerful in teaching us that it's okay to have pain or problems. Because you, as you, you're probably familiar with the story, it came MBSR came out of um, the hospital where John Kabat-Zinn saw there were many people in the health system who who were suffering a lot with. Um, they might have had terminal illness or chronic pain or um, mental illness where conventional medicine couldn't help them any further. Like They would tried every treatment and there was nothing left uh, for them to do, yet they were still suffering a lot. And he thought, there must be something more we can offer these people. So he developed, out of his own personal um, Buddhist practice, he developed this MBSR, Course like an eight-week mindfulness course, and started teaching it. And um, because he's a scientist, you know, also started to assess it and re- do research around the effects of it. And it became clear that it worked really well. So the the data around the people who came out of the these programs was they were so much less stressed. They were if they had chronic pain, the pain level had gone down, the intensity of pain people with depression or anxiety symptoms really reduced, relapse of depression went down and so on. You know, there's a lot of benefits from this. So because it came out of that context around pain, there's you know, it's really designed around this how to deal with suffering of pain or or also emotional pain. And I th- I personally think it's a it is a fairly dry kind of <laughs> program. You know, I'm a teacher of it, but um, it, it has this great discipline around being with pain. It's okay to have pain, and I personally had um, a fantastic kind of um, awakening. Feel like when I did the teacher training, it was in a retreat where we were doing the training, and after I think it was about ten days, and after we, I came out of this training. I had this amazing feeling of never, like never before, that it's okay. Like, it really is okay when things go wrong, or when um, you know I'm sick, or or I've got pain, or this, whatever it, it may be that I come into contact with that's difficult. It's okay. Like, it's it's all right to be there, sort of thing. I, um, and it was this, yeah, very strong feeling. So I'm I'm quite a um, Uh, a huge admirer of John Kabat-Zinn and and that particular um, aspect of MBSR that he's brought through and offered to the the world. Okay. Now, I just wanted to briefly mention in this context around letting go um, or accepting um, difficulty or pain is around equanimity i just find the right page. Here we go. Um, so many people, and in fact I myself, wondered about this um, a lot uh, in the past about letting go. If we let go and we don't care um, or we're not stressed about something, aren't we just being indifferent? Are we becoming kind of ambivalent? Um, because i think we're so used to caring or being so engaged with whether it's our problems or our work or our family our relationships that we don't want to let go about it because would that mean that we don't care anymore or that we're not um, trying or we're giving up or do, do these sort of questions um, have any of you ever wondered any of these sorts of questions yeah great it's not just me <laughs> so i kind of pondered this for years um and you know does letting go mean i become this kind of passive blank slate kind of person i guess that was what i um often wondered and in fact many people have said to me when i've been in um you know teaching or sitting groups that they'd prefer to live life to its fullest and experience the highs and lows uh, than to be neutral all the time they don't want to be not engaged and neutral. Um, people, they want to live passionately, I guess. Um, but that's, equanimity does not suggest, or, or letting go about things does not suggest you have to become neutral and dispassionate and kind of um, blank about, passive about things. So this here's my favourite quote about equanimity, and I don't know who said it, <laughs> so I haven't got a source, but... Equanimity is being able to be as close to life's pleasant experiences as the unpleasant ones, not as far away from either. Okay? Equanimity is being able to be as close to life's pleasant experiences as the unpleasant ones, not as far away from either. Yeah. So I really like that—that that, you know we can be with um, equally with what we enjoy or what's a great pleasant joyful experience as with something that we find very difficult. So, yeah, the idea of of letting go um, so we're not thrown around by life's ups and downs is not about becoming indifferent or, or disengaged. It means we can be okay with things in the good and the bad times. Okay, so now um, the next um, method, if you like, or pathway towards this um, everyday nirvana is what I've called turning towards the non-problematic. Um, oh, actually, before we do that, I want to do the, a practice with you. So, yeah, before we get into the non-problematic, let's do um, a short Um, little guided meditation. It's only going to be maybe um, five minutes. But if you could just uh, sit so you're comfortable and get into your meditation posture. Okay. All right, so closing the eyes now. And settle into the body once again, feeling the breath in the body. Again, relaxing into each out breath. Now I'd like you to bring to mind something from the past in the past that you have lost that was dear to you. So perhaps not bringing the loss of a loved one, if you could choose something um, a little less intense, so it might be that you lost a pet or maybe you lost your car or your ability to run a mile. Um, or my example is I lost the possibility of drinking coffee, which I love because it causes me to get migraines. So it can be something as simple as that, something that you loved but you could no longer have or do. Or a person that moved away and left your life's life or choose something. And just seeing in your mind's eye the image of that activity or thing that you lost. And as you feel into that experience perhaps you were physically no longer able to do something that you enjoyed. feel into the the feeling of the loss and if you can notice in your body where you feel that feeling of losing that thing you cared about or that you enjoyed Remembering that, notice what reaction comes in your body or your mind. Notice your relationship to those feelings. Is it unpleasant or difficult or melancholy? Is there some level of stress? Frustration, and as you sit here with that loss, notice that you can handle it, you can be with it, even if it's unpleasant or sad or there's grief. Notice that the hearts can hold it all. Now letting that image or idea of person or that activity that you lost. Letting that go now. Notice if there's still any feelings associated with it in the body. Breathing into any feelings in the body. So, feeling the space around those feelings. Yes, that sadness or loss might be there, but what else is there? Now to finish, if you wish, you may like to place your hand over the heart space or bringing palms together in front of the heart space. And bringing some warmth and love to yourself. Just acknowledging that experience you had in the past. And again, acknowledging and noticing that the heart can hold it all. The difficulty and the love, it all is there together. Okay, so opening the eyes when you're ready. So that practice was um, related to the the last um, theme that I was talking about around being with difficulty or um, pain of any sort. But it also relates to the next uh, point that I want to talk about, which is, uh, as I said, turning towards the non-problematic. So, when we have any kind of a um, stress or difficulty comes up, naturally, you know, we, and we we can get activated, we can get upset, angry, stressed. It's difficult not to get quite consumed by that situation or the feelings around it. But at the same time as that difficulty, there there are other things going on. There's always other things, yeah? So there might be this challenge, um, this problem, right, really intensely there. But there's also the, my happy dog is there. And there's a bagel on the table that I'm having for lunch. And there's my partner there or my child, you know, there's a lot of um, other things around me. And so it's, in simple terms, it is don't forget to notice what's there besides the stressful event. And that this, um, apart from the stress, there are the non-problematic, so there are other aspects of life other experiences right there that we can turn to at the same time and so that's not about avoiding a stressful event or you know an upsetting thing and kind of bright siding I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna push that one away and I'm gonna focus on something nicer it's about not forgetting that there are other things going on in our life besides this stressful event so excuse me I'll give you a um an example that's um, reasonably close to home for me, and if any of you have been a parent at any point in your life, you will also relate, is around sleep deprivation. Um, and in fact, you don't have to be a parent to have sleep deprivation, so you may have experienced it um, at other times in your life. But when, um, so for me, I had a um, my daughter, who's now five, was a terrible sleeper as a baby and right up until about two and a half, three, she would wake up every night and we'd be awake for an hour or two in the middle of the night. Um, And we we were just exhausted from this, as you can imagine. And um, it it was challenging. I, I remember it was a massive shock to me when I brought home, you know, a newborn baby in the first few months that every night she, multiple times a night was waking me up and I was never getting more than a few hours' sleep, and I was just ex- completely exhausted. And I had to work out a way to deal with this. And so mindfulness practice is really, really um, useful and powerful for this. What I realized was that in, in the night, at three in the morning, she'd be wide awake, standing up this when she was about one, standing up in her cot, bouncing around, wanting to play with me or whatever and I'm just exhausted, struggling to get her to go back to sleep, I, would, I could have these thoughts, how am I going to cope tomorrow? I'm going to be so tired. How am I going to look after her and get through the day I, you know, when I've missed two hours of sleep? Um, it's going to be awful. I'm going to get a migraine. You know, All these sorts of thoughts would go through my head. And that would drive this kind of upset and frustration and so on of being kept awake, yeah? and but I realized I had the choice I could keep thinking that those thoughts or I could think and focus on the fact that I had this really funny and gorgeous little baby who was you know I loved so much and what a beautiful connection we had and you know even at three in the morning I'm so lucky to have her and to you know hold her hand and be here with her and I could literally feel into that you know feeling of loving her and being connected with her and I'd relax you know and I'd feel so much better and I wouldn't be winding myself up about how tired I was going to be the next day even though I was going to be tired the next day so it was turning towards the non-problematic that there's always a choice in what we focus on and, and how we experience any given moment Okay, so the next point or the next, I don't know whether to call these methods or strategies or techniques whatever, the next idea I'm going to offer to you is um, in terms of touching into everyday nirvana is notice the vastness and the spaciousness that we long for and that is always here. And the way personally I experience this is through nature, I find that really the, the direct, quickest way to experience this kind of spaciousness. And for me, um, and, you know, other people it can be also music or art or um, dance. You know, there's lots of ways to experience that um, sense of spaciousness. Um, for, for me, in Australia, there's this bird, I'm pretty sure it's an, only in Australia, um, called the whip bird. And it has this kind of call and it echoes into the forest. And for me, every time I hear a bird call like that, this sort of echo into emptiness, into nothingness, just gives me that sense of spaciousness. Does does anyone know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, that's, you know, I have that experience with the bird call, but you might, have it with the waves in the ocean or, you know, the light sunlight in the trees or whatever it might be. Actually, I walked into this little ante room and it says up the top, the flower opens, we see the Buddha. I was like, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so, yeah, nature is this really um, beautiful way to connect into that feeling of spaciousness or vastness. And as um, the, I was... Um, quoting from Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu earlier, um, it's it's an instinctive. We kind of long for those experiences, don't we? We instinctually want to have, instinctively want to have um, those experiences of the vastness or the um, sense of spaciousness. So it, I think it's about finding what works for you. When, what moments have you felt that in your life, in nature, or with a child, or you know, when is it, and and can you do more of that, or can you do that more often? Okay. The next um, the next method that I want to offer you is fostering the joy that is always available to you, even when life is hard. So, around joy now. James Baraz is pretty much the leader in this area, so (laughs) you guys are probably very well versed in this topic, so I'm not going to go too too, um, deeply into it, but um, I think you probably get it. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, look, the joy that is always there, available, even when um, there's stress or there's pain. Um, And I think the... um, yeah, nature, again, can also foster that joy for many people. So have you ever had that experience where you're having a busy day or a stressful time and suddenly you just stop and notice something small like um, a bird song or a, a fawn leaping or a child laughing or you know, leaves in the trees or something? Um, and that stress kind of drops just for a second or a, a moment. And you feel this sort of ah, the joy that's available anytime. So again, it, I think it's about remembering how to do that and just fostering it in yourself more, more often. How can I do that? Sense into that more often. Um, and children are really, really helpful for this because they do that naturally. So my daughter is, you know, fantastic. Teacher of joy. She's really, really naturally happy and joyful all the time, except when she's crying and screaming. <laughs> so she's really smiles and so full of life. Um, and, you know, as parents or grandparents, it's such a gift having a child, or aunts, uncles, um, a child that can, or, or a teacher, if you're a teacher. Um, children can teach us or remind us of this joy and you know I find that I just drop into hanging out with her and laughing with her and it's just is an easy path to joy really Um, so I recommend it (laughs) okay so the um yeah the last uh method that I want to offer you is noticing the wholesome states not just the anger sadness etc so as I I think I mentioned earlier, we tend to be drawn to more intense emotions like, or experiences like anger or sadness or excitement, um, fun, joy, um, and the experiences that can give us that. And in fact, you know, some people are addicted to that having, they they don't feel alive unless they have intense experiences and they do stuff like um, bungee jumping and, jumping out of airplanes and stuff to, to feel really alive, you know. So I think that's kind of going in the wrong direction, that um, if we can tune into the less exciting states of being, there's a lot of freedom to be found there. Our nervous system, if, if we can tune into the, these more gentle or even neutral states, our nervous system can get used to noticing those sorts of feelings not just expecting intensity all the time so if you're always intense you' you you don't you're not sensitive you don't have the um, sensitivity to be able to, to notice other um, ways of being and your nervous system is kind of ramped up for that the intense experiences so the more you notice the more neutral experiences the more ability you have to, to, do, to be in those experiences um, And, you know, we're taught by our culture to go for the intensity, aren't we? But we miss out on so much this way, like by being addicted to intensity, and we find ourselves moving from one extreme emotion to the next, from excitement to, you know, melancholy to joy. You know, it's bouncing around. It's very exhausting, really. Um, So the... Um, it really relates to the Buddha's teaching of Vedana, so the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Um, so the idea that we um, are drawn to the, the pleasant and the unpleasant um, and kind of we want more of that and we we don't want that. And and um, so the practicing awareness of, the, of this feeling tone, Vedana, means we realize that we're doing it. You start to realize, oh, I'm, I'm really wanting more of that now, or oh, I'm pushing that away. So becoming aware, your awareness practice is really crucial here. So I thought we've got um, a few more minutes. I thought we would finish with a short meditation on this theme around um, noticing these more neutral or other states other than intensity. So we'll do another very short meditation just for a few minutes um, before we finish. So just sitting again in your comfortable posture and closing the eyes. Settling into the breath once again. body sitting here. And now firstly just become aware of any feelings in the body and the mind right now that are pleasant or really enjoyable. So there may be Comfort, warmth, enjoying being here tonight. Excitement about something. Remembering what a delicious dinner you had, whatever it may be. Noticing the pleasant right here and now. Acknowledging that those feelings and then coming back to the breath. And now noticing if there's any unpleasant feelings right now. Perhaps feeling tired or restless or is there any pain or discomfort in the body, hunger? Just noticing that feeling or it may be more of a thought. worrying about something that's in the future. Notice now the intensity of the pleasant and the unpleasant. Was it easier to notice the pleasant thing or the unpleasant thing. So notice that. And then coming back to the breath. And now noticing You can, a neutral feeling where there's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Is it difficult to notice something? Maybe quite subtle. Could Just be the touch of your hands on your lap. Even a, a small thing like that. Again, notice what that's like to be sensing into the neutral experience. And coming back to the breath. As we sit here together, I'd like to finish our time together by doing a brief brief merit meditation together. Offer the fruits of our practice to all beings. May all beings live in peace. May all beings be free from harm. offer the merit of our practice to the following people who have difficulty, stress, pain. And we offer them loving kindness. To all those people we offer the merits of our practice. May all beings be well and happy. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry I went a few minutes over and didn't um, leave time for questions, but feel free to come up um, and say hi and Let me know if you've got any questions or or comments. Thanks so much for having me, and have a lovely evening. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.